if I don't organize parts of my life, I feel like everything is in disarray and it's really hard for me to get anything done. So if I can be at least hyper-organized for specific aspects of my day, it allows me to be more fluid and creative in other parts because otherwise I am constantly kind of scrambling and starting and stopping tasks. So for me, that really, really is helpful and reducing just the amount of, of noise, if you will, as much as possible. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 213 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. And that, too, is why I am just delighted to introduce you today to Emily Yudovsky. Emily is the co-founder and chief product and marketing officer at Marker Learning. Emily's passion for helping students learn comes from her own experience navigating learning disabilities as a child. With the diagnoses and support, Emily went on to complete her undergraduate education at Yale University, where she studied psychology and neuroscience. Prior to co-founding Marker Learning, Emily started Found, a holistic telemedicine company for weight care. Emily received her MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and was an early employee at Google X, Alphabet's Moonshot Factory. In her free time, you can find her exploring L.A. with her Jack Russell Terrier Pip, trying out a new recipe, or surfing. Emily, welcome, and did I get all of that right? You did, and thank you so much for having me today. It's, it's truly an honor, so thank you again. Ditto. So, Emily, I have to ask you before we start, can you tell us what Google, sh uh, excuse me, what Google X was? It's interesting. It, it, it's an amazing arm of Google where 
the goal is to change things by 10x, improve the world by 10x versus just improving things by 10%. And so the whole goal is to take really big leaps in innovation and to change the game in in ways that are really meaningful for the world. And I was very fortunate to be at Google X kind of in the early days of its formation when we were just in a big warehouse, lots of engineers and just a few of us business people. And it's really incredible. They've developed um, things like self-driving cars and internet balloons. And I worked uh, on Google Glass back in the day quite quite a bit. And then um, they have many others that have also spun out. Um, Verily, which is Google's uh, sort of moonshot lab for for health innovation spun out of Google X. And it's really incredible and was such a fun and incredible experience to be a part of. So was it really a secret lab? So yes, uh, you know, at the time it was. Um, it was sort of on a special part of the Google campus, um, high security, but, you know, secret only to some extent. And the idea was really just to not feel constrained in any way and really test and try new things and push the boundaries. Wow, that's such a perfect place for an ADHD brain, don't you think? (laughs) Absolutely. Truly is an ADHD person's dream uh, scenario, for sure. And so was it like the CIA where you're not allowed to say that you work for the secret lab of Google X? So not quite as high uh, (laughs) security as that, Um, but we weren't allowed to share much about what um, goes on in in the wall within those walls. And um, kind of funny story uh, of related to my ADHD and, you know, going on a tangent a little bit here. But when I love those about two weeks into my joining, I was um, to joining the, the Google X kind of moonshot lab, I was on the um, Google Glass team, and we were given the devices. They hadn't come out yet. The pictures hadn't been seen. We were, But we were told to kind of use them out and about in our daily life, but also be discreet about it. And I took it with me on a vacation and then, of course, promptly lost it um, as, as oh my can gosh. be quite um, common with ADHD. You put something down, you forget about it. Long story short, I was I thought I was going to be fired on the spot. Fortunately, I found it. But, you know, as as it goes with things that are, you know, trying to be discreet and I just, you know, thought to myself, oh, man, this is the end. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be out of a job. So so were they photos or was it a piece of paper or, a you know, a document that you lost? I, I lost the actual Google Glass device. Oh, for my gosh. Four hours. <laughs> yes. I can only imagine. And where did you find it? Was it literally right there in plain view? No, it was actually I had accidentally kicked a bag out of my car when I went to fill up my gas tank. I was on a a road trip with some friends and I just didn't I wasn't aware of it until we got to our destination. And then fortunately, a good citizen turned it in. So, oh, my God, very lucky. So it must have been very light if you would inadvertently kick it out. I mean, I was thinking glass, big, heavy thing. No. Yeah, it it was it was rather light and it was I had it in a bag with, you know, some other things in it, but how did they know it was you? Was your name in there? 
So I I had called around every place oh, that I had been, retracing my steps. I, as somebody who's uh, very, um, what's the word, uh, had a lot of experience losing things in my day due to my ADHD. An expert. Exactly. Yeah. I have become an expert in retracing my steps. So fortunately, was able to track it down. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I've got sort of goosebumps and my stomach hurts for you <laughs> many years later. So thanks so much for sharing that story. We love those. Anyway, before we go into what exactly it is that you do now, you know that we always want to talk about the ADHD diagnoses first. So I would love to know what the circumstances were around your ADHD diagnoses. Absolutely. So I was diagnosed with dyslexia and some other learning disabilities when I was seven years old, and I was incredibly fortunate. I had an amazing first grade teacher who recognized that I was really struggling to learn to read. And she reached out to my parents and said, you know, I think Emily is very intelligent, but she is just not getting this reading thing. And I think likely that she has a learning disability, um, recommended that they get me a formal assessment. And fortunate again that my parents could afford to do that. And they jumped right on it and got me evaluated. Actually, my my dad has dyslexia and ADHD as well as one of my sisters. And did so you know that at the time? I did. At the time, I did. But no, no, no. Did your dad know that he had dyslexia and ADHD at the time? Yes, um, okay. he did. But but, you know, only realized it much later in life. But fortunate that they had gone through um, eva the evaluation process with my sister. And so they were familiar with it and jumped right on it. But it was determined at that time after going through the evaluation process that I had dyslexia and also processing disorder and dyscalculia. So you know, it's <laughs> when you look at all the diagnoses, it's kind of amazing that I'm functioning at all. I was not diagnosed at that time with ADHD, even though mm -hmm. I think looking back, it was probably rather apparent based on what we know about ADHD symptoms today, especially at, in how they present in, in women. And but unfortunately, it wasn't diagnosed until I was about 17. And with learning disabilities, you have to be reevaluated every three years in order to maintain your accommodations. And so I had gone back to be reevaluated for, for dyslexia so that I could maintain my accommodations and um, things of that nature. And at that point, that's when it was finally diagnosed that I also had ADHD. And I remember it was the first time that I had actually been asked to fill out any sort of questionnaires, you know, related to ADHD or anything like that, um, versus just you know going have it, I guess have it going directly to my parents or to teachers to get that information. And I just remember thinking to myself as I was going through um, one of the questionnaires, just yeah, you know, yes, 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 thinking this sounds exactly like me. And they were very specific questions and. I didn't really know what they were asking them for, but once I found out that I was diagnosed with ADHD in, in addition to some of those other learning disabilities I mentioned previously, it just really, you know, a light bulb went off and I felt relieved, um, incredibly relieved to, to have that diagnosis and recognize that, hey, you know, it's, it's not my fault that I, I lose things all the time or that I have difficulty focusing or staying on task. And, and 
So very grateful that I was ultimately diagnosed, even though it took a little bit longer. So was this a standard process to always evaluate for ADHD or was your evaluator looking at you and thinking, well, maybe we should test her for this as well? Do you know? I believe they they did it as a standard process. So it wasn't sort of out, out looking at my symptoms and then determining, okay, let's go ahead and test her for this. I think it was part of a larger battery for my age group um, at that time. Which is when you think about it and you think about the comorbidity, which I'm sure you'll talk about with, you know, dyslexia and ADHD, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? That it's just become standard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there is such a high prevalence and comorbidity between um, ADHD and dyslexia and ADHD and, and other developmental, neurodevelopmental disorders as well. Yeah, absolutely. So once you knew it was ADHD, you're 17 years old and you had the benefit of hindsight. What were some of the symptoms that you always wondered about? But now or at 17, you finally recognize that, oh, my gosh, of course, that was my ADHD. So one of the things that really stands out um, in my mind is I was a competitive swimmer growing up oh, man. and I would get in trouble all the time. And um, I just couldn't for the life of me focus on what the coach had to say, what the sets were. You know, he'd read them out to the group and then we would go do them. And I was constantly having difficulty focusing on that. And 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 again, I would I would get in trouble all the time. I actually would end up staying after practice and I would have to do you know, over a thousand meters of butterfly because I didn't listen or I missed something. And I always just thought I, you know, was, you know, quote unquote, you know, like a bad listener, a bad kid. And, uh, you know, I think ha after having that diagnosis recognized, you know, hey, like this, this, this is something, you know, just this how my brain works and it's not my fault. And I think um, other things, again, just, you know, losing things or, task initiation, really struggled to kind of get started or stay on task when when studying. And I had developed over the years coping mechanisms to to help with that. that but it, it was it was very challenging, um, certainly. So once you had that diagnosis, what changed? I think it gave me permission to not blame myself so much and allowed me to recognize that this is just a different way of thinking, not a bad way of thinking, and that there were strategies out there that could be really helpful in areas where, you know, the way that I think or learn or behave may not be conducive to our sort of, you know, quote unquote, what is neurotypical. And so I think, yeah, it, it just allowed me to to kind of evaluate how I operate within our society and come up with better strategies for managing it versus just saying like being hard on myself and saying you're not good enough or not trying hard enough, do better. And it was, yeah, a game changer for me. So was it entirely relief that you felt or was there any sense of I mean, it sounds to me just based on what I know about you that you were a strong student yet with swimming when you had to focus on statistics and the numbers and whatever it was that he wanted you to remember. You couldn't always remember that because you probably weren't paying attention. Right. And so was there always this question about, well, why am I like this if I'm so smart? Definitely. And I think 
Yeah, I, I I was really hard on myself when I didn't get things right. And I expected because I, I was a good student, I I think when I when I got, you know, in trouble or I slipped up or forgot something, I was extra hard on myself because I held myself to really high expectations. And so yeah, I I think I think that was the case. And then also when I received the diagnosis, it wasn't it wasn't all just relief. I think there were there were aspects of it that were a little bit scary. I was really worried about medica- t- taking medication when it was brought up as an option. I was really opposed to it. And I think at the time, a lot of the stigma or that was associated with students, children who take medication was very much like, oh, okay, it's this, you know, disruptive kid that's bouncing off the walls and um, impulsive and and whatnot. And so I think there was also the other side of it where I was like, is that me? Like, I'm not that person. I don't need medication. Nothing's wrong with me. So I think it's also, it wasn't only relief at the time. Did you tell your friends? I did not. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until recently that I f- realized that it is really helpful to be able to share your diagnosis with others and to be able to not only you know wear it as sort of a badge of honor in some ways as as your podcast does so well and speaking about the strengths that come along with ADHD and dyslexia and and different ways of of thinking yeah absolutely of course you know that that's what i think but i also understand being 17 years old you know there's a lot of oh my gosh if they know what will they think Exactly. Because you're different. It's nothing more than that, right? And I'm sure at that time, too, there wasn't as much out there about the strengths of ADHD. It was probably all the problems, which I think is basically what you were alluding to. That's right. And do you think that swimming actually, in a lot of ways, made life a lot easier for you because of the exercise and the brain? And Definitely. Uh always have been incredibly active. And it is, I think, a way of self-medicating in, in many ways and was was an incredible coping strategy for me uh, back then and, and still is today. And even just, you know, going for a, a brisk walk can help me refocus and kind of get any sort of jitters out as well. Yeah. So um, did you try medication? At 17, or were you just adamantly opposed to it? So I was pretty adamantly opposed to it. Mm -hmm. However, individual uh, adults in my life, my parents, as well as um, I had a tutor for dyslexia, uh, they they really encouraged me to try it. They because I think they saw that, wow, this this makes so much sense and it probably would be really helpful so I, I tried um, once or twice in high school, but really, again, was pretty opposed to it. And it wasn't until and then and then in college a little bit as well, when the case, the, the workload was just so much greater. Mm-hmm. And especially having dyslexia, I really had to be incredibly hyper focused and organized um, in order to get the volume of work completed. 
it, it, I, I found that it was rel- very helpful for me. And then I think even more so um, in adulthood recognized that, wow, this is a tool that is really helpful, not just for getting work done, but also for interpersonal relationships and being okay. able to focus on conversations and not being kind of off in space or daydreaming when I want to be present and focused with the individuals in my life. And so what does it do, medication, for you? Because it sounds like you didn't even know you had ADHD until you were 17. You were a really strong student. So I'm sure it made school. Did you feel like you were working much harder before medication? Absolutely. And it allowed me to get more done in a shorter amount of time, which is incredibly important, especially for somebody with dyslexia, where it's taking me twice or three times as long to get things done compared to the average person anyway. Then when you layer on ADHD, that, you know, exacerbates the problem. So for me, yeah, I I think it did. What did you do for your dyslexia? Like what kind of um, therapy was available for that? So I was incredibly fortunate that I had the opportunity to do one-on-one multi-sensory approach to learning how to read. Um, It was with a tutor multiple times a week after school for many years. I have very severe dyslexia, so it did take me quite a while to get to grade level. And, you know, while that was incredibly helpful, still today I struggle with spelling and other symptoms of dyslexia. But, you know, all in all, I had an I was incredibly lucky. One of, you know, I'm the exception to the rule. Most people with dyslexia go undiagnosed and unsupported. And so very grateful that I had access to those resources. And there's a specific type of reading tutoring called Wharton Gillingham, which is particularly helpful for individuals with dyslexia or any struggling readers, really. Yeah. And the beauty of it is you got it young, right? So your brain could actually well, it can still change. I mean, it can change at our age, but it changes much more when we're younger. Absolutely. Okay. So are you combined type then? Yes. I was actually diagnosed with inattentive type, but uh-huh. I believe that I am combined type. I haven't been reevaluated in quite some time. I should probably do it. But at, at the time, I was, I, when I was 17, it was just inattentive type. Do you sometimes wonder about the whole inattentive versus hyperactive versus combined and that really just as we age, you know, as adults, we get more in our head and that's still a form of hyperactivity, right? It's still in our body. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the the reason I say that I, I believe that I ha- I believe I have combined type is I would always uh, even when I was a kid, I would say, like, I feel like. I can just feel kind of the the like blood coursing through my veins. I feel like I could go run a mile, you know, and and that would alleviate stress. Or I, you know, it's hard for me to sit still in one place. I move around a lot. Even just you know, I on a Zoom call, I'm constantly fidgeting and shifting and moving. You know, I'm not you know bouncing off the walls, but it's that just you know movement actually I think helps me focus. Yeah. And 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 so that's why I believe that um, for me, I pr- likely have the combined type. But I, I think it, it's as you've talked about in other episodes on your podcast, 
the symptoms just look so different in women and in men and in and you know huh. girls and boys. And I think for so long there was just this approach of evaluating what does this look like in a boy and trying to apply that to a girl. And so you often see misdiagnoses there. I think it, that is definitely shifting and changing and improving, which I'm I'm so happy about. But yeah, I think I think it's hard to to differentiate and 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 distinguish between the the subtypes. You know, I think about all the times that I have had the opportunity to actually be in a space where either like in on Zoom where you can see someone or that I'm in person with someone with ADHD who tells me they're inattentive. They are always moving around, you know, whether it's biting their fingernails, like you said, you know, moving in their chair, popping their foot. I've never seen someone, you know, who is inattentive literally just sit quietly like a neurotypical would. So I always wonder about that, you know, and maybe that's why they got rid of ADD and everything's now ADHD because Hopefully they're moving in that direction. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's talk about marker learning. Can you tell us what is it? Absolutely. So marker learning is a platform that makes learning disability evaluations and support more accessible and affordable for individuals. So for families and adults as well as schools and Marker is the company that I co-founded in order to level the playing field. Previously, evaluations for things like ADHD and dyslexia have been incredibly expensive and cost prohibitive for many families. And we are able to add technology to the diagnosis process to make it more affordable and accessible. So if you're in an area that might not have readily access to psychologists or there's incredibly long wait lists, um, they tend to also be incredibly expensive. We're able to be there in your wherever you are located. We do everything remotely, as well as for the types of multisensory reading tutoring that I mentioned or executive functioning coaching for ADHD. We can do that remotely and um, at a lower cost. And so that's the whole the whole goal of marker learning is again, just to really even the playing field to make access to these services more equitable so that they're not just available for a small echelon of of the world and and helping people to close the gap. So um, one of the statistics that we talk about a lot at marker learning is the fact that over you know, one in five pe- individuals has a learning disability, but only 4% ever receive a diagnosis or support. And that ma- major gap is the result of lack of access to psychologists and reading specialists or, or executive functioning coaches and the cost prohibitive nature of those services. Okay. So you talk about remote. And I think a lot of uh, people don't know that you can actually get yourself diagnosed anywhere It doesn't matter if it's in your state or not in your state. But then what you do is you would take the diagnoses to your doctor or psychiatrist, and they would be the one then that would look at your testing, right, and then be able to prescribe medication. Do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. So so how how it works is we have a large network of psychologists and throughout the country, and we would match you um, or your child with a 
licensed psychologist that is licensed in the state that you're located in. And then you would meet with them over Zoom. They would conduct several hours of testing, um, just the same as same testing that you would get if you were doing it in person. And then they put together a comprehensive report highlighting strengths and weaknesses and determining any specific diagnoses as well as recommendations for interventions and accommodations. And then that comprehensive report can be given to the school to get those accommodations and interventions implemented um, through an IEP or a 504 plan, um, as well as given to a, a primary care um, clinician or a psychiatrist or a pediatrician um, if medication is appropriate and if medication is appropriate those um, MDs would be able to prescribe medication okay so you do it a little bit differently then the psychologist is actually in state that is correct so okay. well they don't have to be physically located in the state that they that you're located in but they have to be licensed in that state okay okay and then talk to us about when you say lower cost, give us an example. So for ADHD testing, and, you know, I should back up and ask, do people call you all up and say, okay, I want to be tested for ADHD, and then is that all you test kids? And it sounds like you do adults too. Is that true? That is true. Okay. Yes. So, so do they ask to be tested for what they want to be tested for, and then do you only test for those things or, or those, you know, um, I always use the term challenges, or do you always have a battery of tests that you test everyone with or for? With? It's a great, <laughs> it's a great, great question. And we, our evaluations are comprehensive. So um, while we might have individuals, parents or adults that come to us and say, uh, I think, you know, I think I have ADHD or my child has ADHD, regardless of, uh, of what the, what they are or their suspicions are, we we do a full comprehensive battery of tests because we want to be a hundred percent sure that we get the diagnosis right. And as we were talking about earlier, there is a lot of comorbidity between learning disabilities and ADHD, and we don't want to leave anything out. So we believe it's really important for us to look at the entire individual and then have the psychologist make a determination based off of that. And very frequently, there's multiple diagnoses as a result. Okay. So if you are going to, you know, a family comes to you and they want to test a child and then they want to test, oh, let's say the mom. Can you give us an idea of what the costs would be? Yes. So testing for both children and adults is $995. We do offer payment plans and split it up over the course of 12 months to make it a, a bit more affordable for people. But in, if you compare that to what it would cost in a more traditional setting, it can be anywhere from four to $14,000 depending on where you live. So if you're in the New York area, uh, it's you can't find anything for less than $8,000. And so we are continuing to try to push our costs down and again, make it as affordable as possible. And you know, while $1,000 isn't affordable for everybody, much more cost effective than four to fourteen thousand dollars. That is insanity to me. It is 
$8,000 minimum in New- Is that New York City or is in that? New York City, yes. Oh, and gosh. frequently up to $14,000. Wow. Um, which is heartbreaking because that means we're excluding a huge percentage of the population from being able to access this type of diagnosis and support. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what made you start Marker Learning? Like, how did this all begin? Yes, so... Prior to starting Marker Learning, I started another telemedicine company called Found, which is in the metabolic health space. And I, I mentioned that because I was my background in telemedicine is how this um, really came to be. So I was contacted by a friend of mine who asked if I would be willing to speak to a friend of his who was working on a telemedicine idea while he was working at McKinsey, the consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And, he was kind of just working on it on the side. And I was, of course, happy, happy to do that. I didn't really think anything of it. I was just sure I can, I'm happy to offer some advice and and help a fellow entrepreneur out. But when I got on the phone to to speak with him, he shared what he was working on. And it was, he had a vision to make learning disability diagnoses um, and support more affordable through telemedicine. And I was just blown away. I thought it was such a brilliant idea. I was like, oh, how did I not think of this? It, um, and it resonated so deeply with my experience um, having dyslexia and ADHD. And so I knew that I had to join him in making it a reality and was um, incredibly grateful that I had the experience of starting um, a telemedicine it, company in in the past, and I can take all those learnings over to what is now Marker. And I think um, also, uh, as as you've talked about other times on the podcast, um, individuals with ADHD and dyslexia as well tend to be entrepreneurial. And I am certainly um, one of those. And when I hear a good idea, especially one that that resonates so deeply with my own experience, um, I was like, I have to go do this. And um, and it's been it's been such a rewarding and incredible experience. I had a follow up question, and it just flew away. <laughs> when it comes back, no, I know how that goes. I'll let you know. So, when you talk about this um, battery of tests that you always give, right? There's a certain number of tests that you give to, let's say, every student, every person that works with you. What does that include? What learning challenges do you look for? So the the main learning challenges that we look for are dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, as well as ADHD, and others as well, but those are the primary ones. And each one of those diagnoses has a constellation of, of symptoms and um, strengths and weaknesses that the psychologist is evaluating for. Okay. You mentioned that, and you didn't use this term, but I can't remember what the term was, that you have, um, you use technology basically in your testing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What does that mean? Yes. So, we have a standard battery of assessments uh, or tests that the psychologists use. We do not change those that battery at all. We do not apply any new technology to the actual administration of those tests because these are standardized tests that have been accepted by schools and by the college board for decades. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that all of the evaluations and reports that our psychologists deliver 
are accepted by those institutions so that the learners that come to us are able to get the appropriate accommodations and interventions that they're entitled to. We don't want it to be questioned at all. So um, are the so that are you talking about like whisker? Yes. Okay. Yes. Exactly. So so um, these are like the whisk or the KTA or the Woodcock Johnson. Those those types of 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 or the Connors or the Basque. There there's a wide variety of of these types of tests that are utilized, but they are standardized and have been normed on large populations. And so we don't want to at this point mess with that. So where we apply technology is on the operational aspects of delivering an evaluation as well as putting together the report. And the the report that is is used can be a, or that is produced um, rather after the evaluation is very comprehensive. It outlines a lot of information on the student, all of the information, all the data that's collected during four to six hours of testing. And it can be very time consuming for a psychologist to put together. And so our technology helps streamline that process for the psychologist and also um, puts quality checks in place so that we're making sure that every single report and evaluation that's delivered is meeting a specific standard that, you know, is a Johns Hopkins quality report. And even though we're able to deliver it for a quarter or less of the price. Okay. What about learning challenges like, well, and I know it's it's not considered um, a learning disorder, but visual processing disorder. Why is that? Do you know why that's always kind of out there in the wings? That is a great question. And to be, <laughs> I, I don't want to speak some, about something that um, is beyond my expertise. So okay. I would have to get back to you about that. Um, okay. I have to speak to our psychologists. Okay. Um, and that's a, that's a really fair answer. And it's what I, it, it's interesting, you know, when I talk about this, that there seems to be like people who know one area, but they don't know anything about any other areas. And so my comment is always, why isn't that integrated? I, you know, I, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast where I talk about my son and getting diagnosed for dyslexia. And we initially had him tested for, vis for visual processing disorder. And I remember yeah. looking through the test and it literally called out he should be tested for dyslexia. But then when I went back to the, it was um, an optometrist who was, who was testing him, who specialized in visual processing disorder. They're like, you know what? I think first we should handle the visual processing disorder. Mm. And my comment was like, you tried to do that when he was nine and it didn't do any difference. Don't you think we should go get him tested for dyslexia? They could not even recommend anyone to test for dyslexia. They had to get back to me and it took them about a week to, you know, come up with a name. And so my 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 thought was always, why aren't these people working together? But then when I, I was in the process of um, writing a book and I was on visual processing disorder and my editor comes back to me and she says, you know, that is not considered um, a disorder per the a learning disorder per the DSM. And I had no idea. So there seems to be so much information like one camp knows about this, one camp knows about this, yeah. but people aren't talking. But anyway, that's just my off the cuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I really appreciate that, you know, you're basically just telling me what you know. So, well, I, I am certainly going right after this, going to do more research on it and talk to our psychologist because you bring up a really good point. And it's so important that we do integrate 
more and across fields because learning is so multifactorial. And if we're only answering one small part of the question, you know, we're not really helping um, the individual holistically and, and we should be. So I, I will certainly research this after the call and I'm excited to learn about it. Thank you. I'd love to know what you say, because the reason I'm so interested in this is because I have a son with ADHD who was then diagnosed with dyslexia, but also was diagnosed with visual processing disorder. And it's so interesting. You know, he is um, he's tested very high in math, yet he cannot seem to get through a math um, class without a lot of problems. And I can't understand why that is if, you know, his strongest suit, when you look at his standardized testing, is math. And when you talk to him, he's the kind of kid who literally can calculate stuff in his head and just shoot out answers. And he's really good while he's, you know, interested in investment banking. And that's the area where he's, you know, been interning. He does really well in that. But you put him in a math class and he just flounders. And we think that part of it is once they started mixing the numbers with the letters, mm-hmm. you know, but the kid can write an essay. He's a he's an incredible writer. So it's almost like he has a little bit of dyslexia, a little bit of ADHD, a little bit of visual processing disorder. And so by themselves doesn't seem like a lot, but then you combine them all and it, it can be really difficult. So I still feel like we don't 100% have it all figured out. And I don't know that we ever will. Uh, I and, it, and everybody is different too, which is also yeah. makes it hard. And we we do our best to kind of, you know, place labels on things because they can be really helpful. But I think it's also important to remember that when we make a diagnosis of dyslexia or, or dysgraphia, dyscalculia, ADHD, whatever it might be, that doesn't mean the dyslexia that I have looks like your son's or ADHD that I have looks like yours. And everybody is still, you know, different. And there's a range when it comes to all of these disorders. Absolutely. You know, my son always says for him, you know, he was diagnosed with ADHD when he was 12. Um, He wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until he was, I think, 19. And that was such a relief for him. And he wears dyslexia like a badge. (laughs) He loves being dyslexic or at least saying he's dyslexic just because, you know, he's amassed this whole list of all these dyslexic entrepreneurs and how much they've achieved. And and I see how just his drivenness and what he always tells me is that he identifies more with the dyslexia than the ADHD. And that's why, like he really he felt like, yeah, there's ADHD, but. He's always early. He's super organized, compulsively so. He's much more introverted, certainly, than I am. And so I'm curious with you, too. Do you have one learning challenge that you identify more with than the other? Oh, that is a good question. You know, I think for me, I really experience both of them Uh quite significantly in my (laughs) daily life. So, but I can totally understand where your son is coming from. And I think... For dyslexia, we have come such a long way in reducing the stigma in recent years where mm-hmm. it used to be something you you asked me earlier if I, I shared that I had ADHD after receiving a diagnosis with friends and 
you know, family and stuff like that. And and I didn't, but I also didn't share the dyslexia diagnosis. And it only is, was recently where I feel like it it has been destigmatized further to where I I can wear it as a badge of honor. And I think we're getting closer to that with ADHD, but I do feel like there there is still a lot of stigma with with both um, disorders. And ADHD might just be a little bit behind that. And I think people tend to, you know, use it in a way that is not really defining a disorder and instead just um, defining maybe like a shortcoming or something like that, which we need to get away from doing because I think that prevents people that do have ADHD from feeling comfortable about sharing it and talking about all the strengths that come along with it and all of the things that that you highlight on your uh, show. You know, I completely, completely agree with that. It's almost like dyslexia. That is something that's concrete. You can see it, right? People struggle with reading versus with ADHD. It's kind of touches every part of your life and sometimes in not such good ways. And so I think that because of that, all we ever hear about, and as you said, it's getting a lot better, are all the negatives rather than the strengths. The other thing, and this is kind of putting a plug in for what what it is that you all do, you know, if you're if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking, okay, I've got a, a young child and I think there's something going on, but I'm not sure. And maybe I should just hang out a little bit and they may outgrow it. You know, it, it, we'll, we'll get through it. I just really want to encourage you to reach out and get your child tested, especially for dyslexia. Because, for example, my son, who was diagnosed at 19, yeah, he could go through, you know, Orton-Gillingham or, you know, other, you know, dyslexia dyslexia therapies. The one we wanted for him was Orton-Gillingham. But at the age of 19, it would require, and, and I think it might require this for younger children as well, but one hour, five days a week. A 19-year-old in college does not have time, especially, you know, when he's studying economics and he's struggling with math doesn't have, you know, an hour a day, five days a week to devote to this dyslexia therapy. And so he hasn't done it. We've tried. We thought, okay, well, when he comes home for the holidays, he could just go for, because they get like a, a month break. He could just go for a month every single day. And we had a therapist who was willing to do this with him. But then he's exhausted, right? So if we would have known this, and we had been asking since he was nine years old, you know, are you sure it's not dyslexia? Had we known that, we would have had him in dyslexia therapy at nine, and he could have certainly done the one hour, you know, a day, five days a week then. He, he's kind of figured out his own workarounds, and thankfully, he did not have severe dyslexia. But still, I just wish we would have known when he was younger and we could have actually done something about it, because I do think it would have made a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And early intervention is is really key when it comes to dyslexia. But one thing that we've been really focused on at Marker is providing more opportunities for adults because there ha- are so many 
now adults that were overlooked as children. And there are so few resources out there for yeah. the adult dyslexic population. And as you mentioned, um, a lot of the um, programs are tailored more to kids and their schedules. And so we try really hard to be to develop programming that is specifically tailored to adults and to meet individuals where they are in their journey. And that means flexibility in scheduling um, and content that appeals more to an adult versus a child. <laughs> Since you know, a lot uh, of the sports uh, are like, uh, yeah, you know, see a pig run or something, yeah. and it's kind of boring to to read when um, when you're trying to uh, become more proficient in reading. And so, um, I think those things are so important. And what you what you touched on um, is exactly the experience we hear for so many adults that are are working through dyslexia and, and ADHD really as well. So have you, um, you've actually seen adults go through this dyslexia therapy and it has made a marked difference? Yes, absolutely. And um, we are just beginning to roll out these, these downstream um, services and making sure that when we hand a, an adult or a child a report, they have a way of putting that report into action. And if they are have specific challenges that they are wanting to focus on, that we can be there to support them um, in that manner. And we have partnered with an incredible organization called the Dyslexia Training Institute, who have been around for decades and training and educating tutors, not only to teach children, but also adults and and have have really focused on making sure that they have content and programming that is effective for adults in addition to children. And um, so really grateful to be able to collaborate with them. That's really encouraging because I know, I mean, this was probably a year and a half ago when I was searching around trying to figure out what could I possibly, you know, introduce to my son that he might actually be willing to take on. And it just, again, all I could find was this one hour a day, five days a week. And, you know, it just, it wasn't going to happen. So that's super encouraging. So I'm curious how your ADHD impacts how you run your business. Like, what have you learned over the years that you're good at? And what do you now just say, nope, not doing that? <laughs> yes. And certainly there are strengths and there are weaknesses. And uh, I have learned over the years those uh, very acutely building businesses. So I think for me, I thrive in ideation, seeing the big picture, understanding and developing my team and, and individuals, helping them achieve their goals, and being empathetic to the customer and figuring out how can we solve customer problems in an empathetic way that works for them. And I think having ADHD enables one to be more empathetic and to be more understanding of challenges that people have, and as well as being able to see the big picture and being really good at observing behavior. Again, I, I just love your podcast and I've learned, learned so much from it. And I know you have an episode on being intuitive and, and with inter, uh, interpersonal intuition. I think that comes into play as a strength tremendously 
when being an entrepreneur um, and something that I, I'm proud to say is a skill of mine. But there are many things that I am not good at and uh, um, are really challenging um, as an entrepreneur as well. And that comes from task initiation, organization, um, thing, task completion, time management, and procrastination, perfectionism, all of these things I really have to work hard on. And sur- and um, part of that is being really org- trying to be hyper organized and scheduled, creating really specific time blocks where I, where I say, okay, I'm going to take you know two hours, I'm going to shut down my email and Slack and focus on getting something done. And then the next hour, I'm going to do this other task. And then the next hour after that, I'm going to do this thing. Because if if I'm not super hyper regimented and scheduled, I find myself starting and stopping 30 different things and getting nothing done. So that's been really helpful. And then surrounding myself with a team who um, have complementary skills and that um, are understanding of my deficits and accepting of those. Is there anything that you now say, sorry, not doing that? Well, (laughs) yes, there, there definitely, there definitely, there definitely are things like that, that I, that I'm just, you know, not the best person to it. For example, uh, some of it, it has more to do with ADHD. Some of it has more to do with dyslexia, but, you know, I I would never want to put a, an article out with having without having somebody proofread it or <laughs> yeah. you know, things of that nature, but but also just things that can be really tedious and in the weeds. I might not be best suited for it. Might just take me far too long to get it done and slow the company down. So better off handing that to somebody else at the company who is really skilled um, at, at that sort of thing. But it's hard. It's hard to learn to be comfortable say just setting those boundaries and it is something that i've had to work on and still working on yeah i can relate emily so i want to ask you a question that i hope is not offensive but i'm really curious what your thoughts are around it so prior to my son and adhd for smart ass women i really believed that you had these institutions at the very top And if you went to one of those institutions, you were smarter, whatever the hell that even means now, than the students that didn't go there or didn't go to college at all. And I'm asking you this because I noticed that all the co-founders of Marker Learning attended one of those institutions. (laughs) So since ADHD for smart-ass women, I no longer believe that. And I no longer believe that because I have met so many brilliant women that didn't even go to college because they couldn't compete in that arena because they learn differently. And all of this higher education, right? It's really a social construct. So why would the institutions at the very top be motivated to change anything, to do anything differently? And I mean, the current system is working just fine for them and it's working fine for the kids that end up there, right? And I personally, I think that's a shame because these institutions are missing out on some of our brightest neurodivergent brains just because they learn differently. And so I'd love to know what your response to that was because, or is because you test all these kids. And I've just come to believe that 
every single person I meet is brilliant in something if we could just get them to figure out what it is that they're brilliant at. And, you know, the beauty of the Internet is that we're finding all kinds of ways to learn and showcase our brilliance without having to abide by, you know, what the what the social structure has dictated that we should be doing. And I was so part of that. And so now I just want to know what you think. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, had I not had the resources that 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 I did just because simply I was born, you know, into the family that I was born into, I would not be here speaking with you today, most likely. But I certainly would not have been able to attend the universities that I attended. And I, I am very grateful for those experiences and, um, you know, learn so much at those institutions. But you know, again, I wouldn't be there if it hadn't been for um, being able to get evaluated early, having early intervention, being, you know, my parents spending tens of thousands of dollars over the years on Orton-Gillingham tutoring. And it doesn't mean, and I know that I'm not smarter than anybody else. It's just that I had those resources. So the system is totally broken and unequal. And what we're trying to do at Marker Learning is even the playing field. But to your point, it's not simply just making sure everyone has access to uh, evaluation and to intervention. Those are critical. But we also have to change the system and start recognizing strengths in a much broader capacity. Because, as you said, we, we're, we're, we're evaluating for such narrow things on things like the SAT or yeah. uh, college, whatever the college admissions are looking at, and they're missing out on such brilliant individuals. And so in addition to making sure students have access to prop learning that works in a way, you know, works for them, we also have to change the system overall. And I am hopeful that we can do that, but we have to shed light on it and continue to push in that direction. And one of the things that I think is so wonderful about the evaluations that we do or getting a psychoeducational evaluation in general is it highlights it not just the challenges, but also the strengths and seeing that, wow, I didn't realize I, I excelled in in reasoning or in um you know, one area or the other. And it can be so validating. And um, I think how cool would it be if every single person could understand what their strengths and weaknesses are and we could get institutions and workplaces to value value uh, a different constellation of strengths and weaknesses better. So, I yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And and I, I think we can get there. So, Emily, you see that, too, though, right? And all the kids that you are testing, there is always this incredible strength. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I read a really interesting article um, not too long ago that was talking about why learning disabilities and ADHD exist from an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm. And it really resonated with me. And, and basically what what it boiled down to was the fact that back in the day, we, you know, we had communities where ev- we had a different individuals who were good at different things. And that's how they got things done. Right. There were it wasn't everybody w- had the same strengths and the same weaknesses. No, it was the exact opposite. And they survived because of that. And now we've moved to this environment where we've said, OK, you need to be 
great at mathematics and great at spelling and reading and <laughs> test taking. And if you're not, then just calculia. Yeah, exactly. You know, you uh, you're not entitled to go to these schools or these be in these workplaces, and you're going to be punished. And it's ridiculous because there are so many, you know ways of looking at problems differently that we could be advancing in the world a better place if only we rewarded uh, different ways of, of thinking and different skill sets. So what you just said is exactly the number one reason why if you have children or even if you're an adult, you should get tested because it will you will discover I mean it's 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 really fun actually. I, I had a ton as an adult and I just found it so much fun because it reinforced what I already knew that I was good at. And it also uncovered some areas that I didn't even know that I was good at. So I was just absolutely certain that I sucked at math. And I've never done particularly poorly at math, but it was one of those subjects that I had to work really hard to do well. And I was just convinced I suck at math. I'm like Barbie. I used to make jokes about that. And then when I got myself tested, I was like, actually, you're pretty strong at math. Emily, that article that you mentioned about learning differences and how, you know, in tribes, I guess, everyone had their own unique strengths. Is there any chance that you can dig that up and send that to me so I can include that in the show notes? Yes, definitely. I will I will find it and send it over. We have um, at Marker Learning, one of our, our values is a learner's mindset. And we have a Slack channel where we share all of these articles. So I'm pretty sure I, I sent it out. So I should be able to find it and, and send it to you. I love it. Okay. So in closing, we always have to ask that closing question. What do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? For me personally, I think it is organization. And I say that because if I don't organize parts of my life, I feel like everything is in disarray and it's really hard for me to get anything done. So if I can be at least hyper-organized for specific aspects of my day, it allows me to be more fluid and creative in other parts because otherwise I am constantly kind of scrambling and starting and stopping tasks. So for me, that really, really is helpful and reducing just the amount of, of noise, if you will, as much as possible. So, you know, again, I think everybody is different, but that is what I have found as the best coping strategy for me. So you're basically building a structure. Exactly. Exactly. Which, which we always say we don't want, but ultimately we need it more than anyone. And I would I would high five that if I don't have... I don't know what I'm working on for today. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm basically solving everybody else's problems instead of actually moving forward what I want, you know, what I want to move forward. So I completely hear that. That resonates. Uh, one one thing I've just for, forgot to mention previously when you were asking about um, sort of entrepreneurship and ADHD, one thing I found that has ADHD has enabled me to do well is is there, there's constantly fire drills or constantly something <laughs> urgent. And um, we thrive in those scenarios. People with ADHD, we really uh, are at our best when something is urgent and needs to get done, which is great. 
but that can also if if everything seems urgent all the time and you're and you don't have a schedule or a plan it can also be really distracting and so yeah i think organization and uh time blocking are are really crucial for for my success at least i couldn't time block if i tried <laughs> so, and, and yes it's so and it's so every brain is different right it 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 is and i've had to it definitely has taken me a while to be able to implement that in my life. But since I have, it has been a game changer. Uh, well, maybe we need to talk about how you actually do that, because I absolutely know what I'm working at during the day. But if I am forced, I might have more of a difficult personality than you. Um, if I am forced to do it at a certain time, I will not do it just to spite myself, <laughs> which is ridiculous. I need the flexibility. So I need to know what I'm going to get done today, but I need the flexibility to choose when I'm going to do it. However, Emily, I have a feeling when I was your age, I could probably do that. Just wait till perimenopause. Uh, that is so interesting. I, you know, it. it I will see. <laughs> and it's yeah. great that we can all find what works well for each of us. And Absolutely. And, and I say that all the time, you know, just because I say, oh, that doesn't work for me. It does not mean it won't work for you. You have to try it. We all have different brains, even within our ADHD. Absolutely. And it comes down to experimentation. I think just, OK, going to try this doesn't work. OK, good. I learned something. Now on to the next thing. Without beating yourself up. Definitely. Who cares if it works for your neighbor or it works for Emily? It doesn't matter what works for you. That's anyway, right. Emily, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? At the moment, uh, very focused on marker learning and making sure that we have a comprehensive platform to help individuals with ADHD and other learning disabilities. So that is my focus at the moment. And just grateful to be able to spend my time on, on something I, I think is so important for the world. It is. So where can people find you if they want to know more about you? They want to know about marker learning, blah, blah, blah. Yes, they can visit our website at markerlearning.com. And that is the best, best place to go. This will be in the show notes. Is there any place that if someone wants to ask you specifically a question about something that you talked about here, is there any place that they could reach out for that? Absolutely. They can email me anytime at emily, E-M-I-L-Y, at markerlearning.com. Well, that couldn't be any easier. I just want to make sure that I get that into our show notes. So it's emily at markerlearning.com. That's right. Wonderful. Emily, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Thank you. And thank you for the incredible work that you do your podcast is fantastic, and I so appreciate everything that you do. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Emily. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Emily, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week.
You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.